There have been times, many times in my life, where I have gotten in people's faces. I was a store detective for six years, and in that time I arrested hundreds, hundreds of people. Most of the time, those were really simple. Uh, because 25 or 30 years ago, when you would uh, approach someone and confront them on doing something like stealing, most people were embarrassed. And they simply complied, and all you had to do was inform them of who you were and instruct them on what we were now going to do, and they simply complied half the time with their head hung low in embarrassment. Occasionally, there were folks who would start to get a little, I don't know, defensive about it. And I would have to um, maybe raise my voice a little bit or be a little bit firm and uh, forceful in my addressing them just to establish who was in authority there and that they needed to comply or there would be consequences. About two, maybe three times a month, we would run into those folks who would choose the consequences. And it was game on. And usually, almost always, that didn't end well for them, them choosing to go against who was in authority and choosing to think that they could just deal with the consequences. They were people who had chosen to be lawbreakers, not once, but now twice in their willingness to fight when caught. It would be, it, you, normally this wasn't a big problem because these were folks that they didn't know me and I didn't know them. So the confrontation wasn't uncomfortable that way. But can you imagine on the extremely rare occasion when one of the store detectives would know, or if I, if I remember correctly, one time they were related to the person we were apprehending, the uncomfortableness of that situation. I remember watching a, a, a video one time, uh, and, a, and a guy who had been a cop said, during his interview to be a cop, uh, they asked him, what would you do if you had to arrest your mother? And his response was, I would call for backup. Probably a good choice. When I managed for the busing company, there were never any physical confrontations, but on several occasions, I had to discipline employees for wrongs that included things from just not following the rules or dishonesty right up to actual theft from the company. Sometimes we had to fire people, and that was not a very comfortable situation. No one wants to be in a situation in which you are obliged to get in a confrontation like that with someone, especially if it's someone that you... But even so, in this scenario, you still have something going for you. In all the situations that I've described, one person is clearly in the right and one person is clearly in the wrong. It still might end with hurt feelings and damaged relationships because people have egos and it's humiliating to be caught out doing something wrong like stealing. 
Scripture is very clear about some of those sorts of situations. We talked about it a few weeks ago. Jesus himself put forth the prescription for how to deal with another believer who commits a sin against you. If they have sinned against you personally, he said how to deal with this. In Matthew chapter 18, verses 15 through 17, it says, If your brother sins against you, go and show him his fault between you and him alone. If he listens to you, you've gained your brother. But if he does not listen, take one or two others along with you, that every charge may be established by the evidence of two or three witnesses. If he refuses to listen even to them, tell it to the church. And if he refuses to listen even to the church, let him be to you as a Gentile and a tax collector. This is clear that we should do it in the loving manner of someone who desires reconciliation, not conquest. You can never approach another person who has wronged you with the goal of humiliating or destroying them. In that case, you yourself would be the person who has become the sinner and needs to repent. It has been my experience that when this is approached with the correct attitude and with a good demeanor, it has a fairly high success rate. And that somewhat is dependent upon the ego and mindset of the person who's done the wrongdoing. But it has a general outcome most of the time. My experience is that it, it works better than half of the time. Good enough that this would be a, a practice that I would commend to people even if Jesus had not given it as an instruction. It works. So we should. But Jesus did give it instructions, so we should do it because we are told to. There are, however, some variations from that example in Matthew 8 that we see in Scripture because the situation isn't really what Jesus described in Matthew 18. So it doesn't get handled in the same way that Jesus describes. Let's take a look at one of them right now. Paul got somewhat publicly in the face of Peter on one occasion. And it would seem, at least if you just gave it a glance, to be going against what Matthew 18 is. But when we look at it, we can see several reasons why it should be handled differently. Turn with me, if you would, to Galatians chapter 2, verses 11 through 14. When Cephas came to Antioch, I opposed him to his face, because he stood condemned. For before certain men came from James, he used to eat with the Gentiles. Now, just, just as a matter of clarity, if you're not familiar with this, Jews, Old Testament Jewish people, do not eat with Gentiles. To them, that's just wrong. You just don't do that. They would even consider it disgusting because the practices are different, the foods are different, the way they do things is different, and they were called to be separate. So they wouldn't even eat with Gentiles. And so he says that before certain people came from Jerusalem that, that uh, claimed to be sent by James, Peter used to eat with the Gentile believers. You had Jewish believers and Gentile believers, and he was fellowshipping with them. 
But when they arrived, he began to draw back and separate himself from the Gentiles because he was afraid of those who belonged to the circumcision group. People who, who were like, hey, we're Jews, we still have to follow all the Old Testament laws. The other Jews, the, the Jews who were there in that town, joined him in his hypocrisy. So that by their hypocrisy, even Barnabas was led astray. When I saw that they were not acting in line with the truth of the gospel, I said to Cephas, in front of them all, you are a Jew, yet you live like a Gentile and not like a Jew. How is it then that you force Gentiles to follow Jewish customs? He's basically saying that unless they were willing to follow the Jewish rules on dietary with them. And he's saying, how dare you behave like this? In this particular instance, Paul wasn't gentle with Peter, and he wasn't in private with Peter when he dealt with him. And it would seem that he boldly confronted him publicly in a little bit of a humiliating manner. If you read that, it sounds pretty harsh. Why would this be okay? It was. Seems so different. Well, first I would suggest that Paul was probably being led by the Holy Spirit to do this public rebuking. But secondly, this was not the exact situation which Jesus had described in Matthew 8. They probably did something which other people were unaware of. When Jesus was talking about this, he's like, okay, you and this other believer have a problem where they've done something against you, but they probably did it against you in a way that other people are unaware of it. So what you need to do is go to them in private, just the two of you, to try to work this, and then proceed if that doesn't work. When, when people get confronted publicly about something they did wrong, we don't tend to respond very well to that. Most people tend to dig in their heels and fight you even if they know you're right because you've, Peter wasn't wronging Paul, per se, in this situation. He was wronging the entire church. He was acting in a way that was harmful to people as individuals and also harmful to the entire group of Christians, causing division among them by what he was doing. In addition to this, and it not being a private personal wronging, which should be handled privately, this was an immediate and ongoing event. It was a threat to the unity of the church. Let me just put it this way. If someone were here, I'm, sit, I'm up here standing here, I'm preaching, and I look out, and I see that, uh, let's make up a name, um, Fred Jones, long-term member Fred Jones, is sitting over there where nobody else is noticing him, and I look out, and I see that Fred has a lighter out, and he is continually trying to light the pew padding on fire. That is an immediate and ongoing threat to everyone here. It would be foolish for me to say, you know, I'm going to make a mental note to 
Go talk to Fred later about that and tell him that that's not something he... No! That's a threat immediately. I would yell at him and I would say, Fred, you stop that right now or I'm sending Kevin Trimble back to you. It would be something that had to be dealt with in order to stop the immediate problem. And that, I believe, is why Paul addressed Peter in this way. There was a problem going on, a dangerous behavior happening in real time. And it was already spreading to others and causing harm within the body of believers. Paul put an immediate and public stop to it. But what about those other type of... Some things just aren't biblically sticking points about good and evil or right and wrong. Some things are just life preferences. And people are not getting along with one another over those. In some other situations, it may be an issue about right and wrong. But there either isn't clear enough guidance on the topic from Scripture to determine that someone is doing something wrong. Or there's enough scholarly disagreement that one party must surely be in the wrong, but both sides believe that they are in the right. Sometimes in Scripture you can point to and you say, okay, Fred, you're, you're in the wrong here. Let's say Wilma is the one who's not in the wrong. Or both of them can point to Scripture and say, no, look, I'm the one who's in the right. One of them is definitely wrong, but they both think. Turn with me, if you would, to Philippians chapter 4, verses 2 through 7. I'm going to try at these names. I entreat Yodia, and I entreat to agree. Yes, I ask you also, true companion, help who have labored side by side with me in the gospel, together with Clement and the rest of my fellow workers, whose name of life. Rejoice in the Lord always. Again, I say, rejoice. Let your reasonableness to everyone. The Lord is at Do not be anxious about anything, but in everything, by prayer and supplication, with thanksgiving, let your requests be made known to God. And the peace of God, which surpasses all understanding, will guard your hearts in Christ. We are given no clue as to the nature of the disagreement of these two women, and I think that that's probably for the best. The reason I think that that's best, that we don't even know what they had a disagreement about, is because most of us can tend to be a little bit legalistic. And if we knew what the problem was between then later on we'd say, well, that's not what we're talking about. They were fighting about that, and that's not what we're fighting about, so that doesn't apply to me. So the fact that we don't know means that we can apply this solution in a little bit uh, general way to help with our ins- We can use their situation. Good, God-fearing people were in disagreement. Enough so that it must have been causing some problems for the church. Why do I say that? Because Paul, who isn't even in the city with them, has heard about it, clear over wherever he is at the moment, that it's causing enough disturbance that he feels the need to address it and get them to let it go or resolve the... We can further surmise 
that this wasn't an issue in which one of them was clearly at fault and sinning and the other was not. If this had been the situation, if one of them had been doing something wrong and the other one wasn't, Paul would have called them out on it. Paul had no problem with that. There's plenty of instances where Paul in his letters calls out an individual and says, hey, you're doing something wrong, knock it off. Whatever it is, they both probably think that they're justified in their actions and that the situation warranted the ongoing conflict. You know, sometimes we think we're in the right and we think the other person is in the wrong. And we're so determined that we're going to dig in our heels and we're just not going to deal with it in any way, shape, or form other than trying to win. And sometimes that is absolutely necessary. There's a lot of things in a line in the sand and say, no, unacceptable. By no means is this something that is going to be allowed I'm not going to change my mind on it because it's wrong. In their situation, apparently, they both probably thought they were in the right. And nobody was willing to bend in it to fix the situation. I don't know if this was a biblical thing, a thing about doctrine, or something about a recipe that their mothers preferred. I don't know. But they had an argument that was ongoing, and they wouldn't end it. What's interesting is that Paul doesn't just tell them to drop it. He doesn't just say, hey, stop it, you two. You're causing problems. Instead, he basically tells them that he would like very much for them come to a... Just pretending that a problem wasn't there wouldn't help. But the underlying tension would still cause problems. And Paul either didn't know enough about it to declare one to be right and wrong, or simply it didn't amount to a right and wrong issue. Sometimes with children, it isn't in the best interest of their mental growth, their spiritual growth, and their social growth for the adult in their life to jump in and start barking orders about who needs to do what. Sometimes you do. Sometimes you don't. A few months ago, my Sunday afternoon serenity, my nap at about 3, 3.30 in the afternoon on a nice Sunday was very much disturbed by two grandchildren going at it. They were angry with each other and they were being loud and obnoxious about what they're being angry about. And Grandpa came storming out of his room from his freshly disturbed nap and said, knock it off. You two, figure it out. Find out a way to get along or whatever it is you're fighting over. I'm taking it away and you're both going to bed. Guess what? Figured it out. They established a way for that to work with both of them. And I didn't have to figure out the solution. And guess what? I went back to bed. Sunday afternoon nap is important. Beyond this, Paul somewhat appoints a referee or an arbiter. Someone who knows and loves both of them. And wants them to come to a good 
conclusion. He implores this person to help these two ladies. Most people know, and you would probably agree with me, that if you are in a disagreement with someone, the solution is easier to swallow if it doesn't come out of the mouth of the person you're in the argument with. Amen? Because if they suggest it, you're just naturally going to reject, reject it or at least resist it. It can be the exact same solution offered by a neutral party. It can be just as reasonable. But if the person you're arguing with suggests it, you're not going to like it. If a neutral party suggests it, you both might go, oh, okay, all right, that's, that's reasonable. That sounds good. As we see from the later verses in this passage, Paul is asking them, and that will reflect well upon them in the church, and it will reflect well about the church. Sometimes people just cannot be moved from their positions. And sometimes people should not move from their positions. In the other situation, well, another way that the Lord works through our fallible. Paul himself fell into sharp discord with a beloved friend and they never did work out their differences. But what they did do was to agree to disagree and they behaved like grown-ups in their on the topic. This resulted in many blessings to many people. Acts chapter 15, verses 36 through 41 said, And after some days, Paul said to Barnabas, Let us return and visit the brothers in every city where we proclaim the word of the Lord and see how they are. Sounds like a great idea. Now Barnabas wanted to take with them John, called Mark. But Paul thought best not to take him with them, one who had withdrawn from them in Pamphylia and had not gone on with them in the work. So John Mark had been with them before, but he pretty much abandoned them and said, yeah, I quit, and he left. Barnabas wants to give him a second chance. Paul's like, no. And, they and there arose a sharp disagreement so that they separated from each other. Barnabas took Mark with him and sailed away to Cyprus, but Paul chose Silas and departed, having been commended by the brothers to the grace of the Lord, and he went through Syria and Cilicia. Barnabas wanted to give Mark another chance. Paul, neither side was sinful in their position, but both were unwavering in what they thought about it. But they didn't let this cause a broken friendship or an inseparable rift between them. They simply decided that this was something upon which they could not agree. So they literally, in this case, went their separate way. But they did it in such a way, in such a way and with such behavior and mindset that the once dynamic duo of church establishing now became two teams of two dynamic duos. And it had some other blessings with it too. The two teams went in opposite directions, doing basically... But now they both had this advantage. It had been Paul and Barnabas, two very established, very wise, very educated Christians going and doing this together. Now, 
Barnabas takes an apprentice, and Paul takes an apprentice. So you've got the older established person along with a who will be there to take up the task, passes them to work. And they went, there wasn't a right or wrong in their disagreement, but they were both adamant in their position. They behaved like adults. They just did something good and said, okay, you know what, let's do this differently. I've probably told almost all of you that at the very first church that I was the senior minister, um, I didn't know this until I'd been there for over a year. But there were two women in the church, both of them elders' wives, who hated the other one's guts. Wouldn't room. The first time I picked up on this, I was standing in the kitchen with a group of ladies and they're having a nice conversation, and another lady walks in, and the one person just gets mad, turns around, and walks out. Whoa, what was that all about? Turns out this is unacceptable. If they had looked at Paul's example and the different scriptures on the topic, they would see that this was not the way all of the to I. And there's not a clear, this one I would have us look at fully looked at before. Philippians chapter 2, verses 1 through. So if there is any encouragement in Christ, any comfort from love, any participation in any affection, complete my joy by being having the same love, being in full accord and of one mind. Do nothing of selfish but in humility count others. I think that if we approach any that mindset, which is not easy, then we will have blessing as I, a church that I know and love is and having because there is one person in the right on a topic and they are pushing their agenda and other people have said, no, no, that's not what Scripture says. We're not going to go. And both parties have dug in their heels. Now in that situation, I, I believe that one party is it and I have gently suggested it's not good in that particular partially the church is meant to love not just right and wrong scripture moral evil hey there's no compromise can't happen that's what's ruling lives and hundreds of thousands of churches today is because what the bible clearly says about right and wrong is being waffled on and being given in but in other situations where one person likes it that way and show love, oh, that is love. Nobody's going to come into where they see ugliness. You know, they say in, in, in virtually every church split, it's a three-way split. By the way, don't worry, I'm not talking about us. <laughs> if everybody's going, what's going on? No, no, no real topic and some other things outside of our church. In, in all of those situations, it's always a three-way split. You've got this side that's fighting, you've got this side that's fighting, and you've got half the people who aren't in, interested, but only probably over the dumbest thing. The dumbest thing. Incredibly, in all of the guidance, whether it is just two people who have a disagreement about the color of the... Trust me. Or it's someone insisting the doctrine of the, in all of... The, God has in all of the start. Father God, we love you. We thank you so much. Lord, help us. Help us to help others. Lord, help us to be. Lord, whenever they're in your body and will us how. If we, Lord, for those churches out there, I just pray. Amen.